Hello, welcome to Medicine Box Voices. My name is Sam Giglani. Here we go in pursuit of conversations about medicine, not just about what it is and what it does, but about what it means, about the whole surprise of human life, its inevitable weathering, and the challenge of how to care for all of us. Hello, I'm here in Leamington Spa with uh, the writer Kit Dewal. Kit was born in Birmingham to, I think, first-generation immigrant, Irish mother and Caribbean father. She read her first novel at the age of 22 and then worked in criminal and family law for a good 15 years before starting as a writer. On the background of that, her very first novel was the extraordinary and hugely acclaimed My Name is Leon, and more recently, the Women's Prize long-listed The Trick to Time. Welcome. Hello. Thanks, Kit. Can you just tell me about... Leon. Leon is, um, he's a nine-year-old boy. His mother is white. His father is generally absent, having spent bouts of time in prison. Um, Leon, the the book opens with Leon being absolutely delighted with the birth of his baby brother, who's white, from it for a different father. And he loves his baby brother. I mean, absolutely loves him. He loves his mother. His mother isn't a great mom. He is not aware of that. Or if he is, it's right at the edge of his consciousness that she might not be a good mother, but basically he loves her. He adores her. He adores her and he adores his baby brother. And and actually, at the beginning of the book, it, when we meet him, life, it, from his perspective, is great. He occasionally has to go and stay with the lady up, upstairs who looks after him quite a bit, but that's okay. Um, his mom. She gets shouty and she she cries a bit, but that's okay. And his baby brother isn't really looked after that well, but he's doing a, quite a good job himself of doing that. And from that point, we follow his time through through the care system, following just a series of what actually quite what appears to be quite trivial events, um, detailing. The, the complete um, labyrinth of that system for this lad, premised entirely on just some quite minor misfortunes, misfortunes that could befall, you know, pretty much Absolutely. anyone. So he goes into foster care following his mother's breakdown and he goes very fortuitously to a lovely woman. Mm. And that obviously doesn't happen all the time for children in care in the real world. Uh, who, who loves him, who, who really, really cares for him, but she's not well. She's, she's very overweight. She, you know, she's, she's just not a very well person. She herself goes into hospital and Leon is fostered again with that carer's sister who doesn't really want to look after any children ever. Um, but she's thinking, it's temporary. I can do it. And she's not the warm lovely Maureen that makes Leon feel good about the world and good about himself. She's great in her own way, but she's not full of um, love and she's not meeting lots of his needs. Um, So he goes looking elsewhere for comfort and for friendship while all the time thinking nobody's looking after me properly and they've separated me from the thing I love the most in the world, my baby brother. So 
I have to get him back. And he thinks that's an, a very, very viable plan, a very good plan. And he very quietly, secretively, um, carefully goes about constructing uh, the means by which he'll get his baby brother back and live with him and look after him. How truthful is it in terms of its representation of the complete fragility and almost um, random domino effect of the care system? It's, um, if anything, uh, I, I know it's quite harrowing for people to read about Leon, what happens to him, but if anything, um, although this happens over less than a year, he might have had four or five moves in the real world. And children, when they go into care at nine, are likely to have 14, 15 moves before they're 17 or 18. Well, that, that's a sort of that's a reasonable number. That's a reasonable number, especially if they are boys and they're a bit boisterous and they're a bit naughty, and they can move from carer to carer to carer to home. I mean, there still are children's homes, not many of them, but there are move because homes. carers relinquish. What, say I can't do this anymore. What's what prompts the move? So you would have a situation where, let's say, Leon's twelve and he's in care and he's been naughty, been bad at school, and he's suspended from school. And he comes home and he kicks off and the social worker might say, or the foster carer might say, I can't cope with him. Come and take him, take him away. So then he will go into an emergency placement. That emergency placement can it be anything from one night to three months, but it's not his home. Then he'll be found another carer and it'll be a carer who's used to managing challenging behaviour. And then he'll go there by now. He's had another broken attachment. This might be the seventh, eighth broken attachment. It's unlikely he's going to perform well at this carer's house. And so we go. He'll be suspended from another school, suspended from another placement, and so forth. And that pattern, it sounds to me as if you fell into this work almost fortuitously. Yes. You know, when you were a young woman. How did you, what was your response to this when you met it for the first time? Um, when so you saw the reality as it really is. It was, I mean, I, I was surprised. That, I mean, there's lots of, there's a real shortage of foster carers. So you do have children in the wrong placement and you'd see this bad behaviour. I'm not a social worker. I have absolutely no training in therapy or counselling or anything like that. But I uh, certainly saw from the files how children are talked about. So it's very much like, Client number seven needs to go to placement number 43. That would never be said, but that's what it looks like. So it's very problem-solving as as opposed to holistic. It's, you know, we have this um, difficult child and we need need to put him in a placement. And how can, you know, how can we best get that done as quickly as possible? Not wonder what the child wants i wonder what the child needs has anyone talked to him and even when they do when social workers talk to children it's not it's not the social worker they want to talk to it's a terribly naive question are foster carers remunerated as such they are um adequately sometimes adequately if you have a child with compound needs so you might have a child who's disabled as well as challenging behavior needs round-the-clock care, that can be well paid, but it is a 24-7 job. But you do have foster carers who are paid, they've got two lovely children, and they will say, okay, we're going on holiday now, take the kids. 
while we go on holiday because we need a break from them. And they're not our family. That's our job. Mm. So those children definitely know they are not part yes. of that family. Okay. You were hard on the social workers, I thought. Yeah. When I say that, I don't mean that's not me saying you were hard on But there was a sense where you were ch- questioning some of the language and the yeah. ticks that occupied the whole frontier with the children. Absolutely. So definitely ch- uh, social workers have a face for children. And I don't think, and this is, you know, such a blanket statement because there are fantastic social workers, people I know, people I've worked with. But there are also people, I have said this so many times, who should be working at the NatWest Bank because they don't have a feel for the pain of childhood and a childhood interrupted and a broken childhood. And many of them have never not paid the electric bill, have never been hungry, have never, I'm not saying you have to be beaten to be a social worker, but at least have an understanding and a deep compassion and what an awareness. That? What generates that? <clears throat> it's a really pertinent question, that, as pertinent to medicine, when you, well, in some individuals that have a feel for another's pain and others who don't. What, it's a big question, I wonder if you've got any views on what generates that insight or what galvanises it? Uh, for, for me, um, I feel it's an awareness that it could be me. Because I'm, you know, I'm a selfish person. So I think once I think that could be me, even if it couldn't be me, you know, it's another time, it's another place. It might have been ten generations ago, but it could have been my accident of birth. You know, put me in Paraguay, 1920. If that's what I'm reading about, um, so it's an awareness that it, it could be you, it could be me, it could be my children, it could be my mother, it could be my sister, and it's also perhaps a love of humanity and just. Being having the space in your heart, in your psyche, to take that on board. And I would say this about being a social worker, it's grim. You go into some really hard situations, some really damaged houses, some really broken societies, and, and you are the last person that's coming in. You're the person that's coming in to take the child. All the stuff that used to happen... Um, preventative work with families, that's gone. Austerity has just decimated that. So by the time social workers are going in now, it's to take the child. It's not to say to Carol, Carol, you should be changing this nappy more frequently. Carol, would you like some parenting classes? Carol, would you like to go to this day centre twice a week where the kids can run around and you've got someone to talk to? That's gone. So the first time social services hear about it would be, Carol's had a breakdown, she's in hospital, here are these two kids. And so they're going into, constantly going into crises. They'll be spat at, they'll be abused, they'll be punched, they'll be kicked. They'll have children saying, I hate you, you took me away. Well, social workers haven't done anything, actually. It's their parents, usually. Um, but you do that for long enough and you become machine-like about it. And, you, you know, you walk in and say, we've got to take these kids, we're going to do that, we're going to do that, then I'll go for a drink. It's interesting to me, <clears throat> that description and how little, I guess, we um, champion those roles in our society. If yeah. we think about what we'd remunerate someone like me, a consultant oncologist in a spa town compared to a social worker in Yeah, in Hackney, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and it, it's, it's thankless, it's frontline. 
I would not do it for £100,000 a year. I would not be a social worker. I wouldn't be a frontline social worker. And they are paid, you know, 22000 24000 It's shift work. Very often you have to do emergency call-outs. Um, and it's, it's very, you know, you, also the other thing is you're the fall guy. You know, how many times when a child dies in custody, uh, sorry, in, in care, why didn't social services do this? Why didn't social services do that? And they'll find a social worker to make the scapegoat. That social worker might have 80 cases, 30 of them critical. The others should be critical, but I'm just not going to go to that one because this child's being burnt by a cigarette every week. But that one, he's okay. And that's Leon in the book. Leon's the child that actually he's not being abused. I know he misses his mom, but tough. But you're in a nice house. She's looking after you. But because down the road, I've got two children that I think are being really seriously neglected or beaten or whatever. So she, the zebra, the social worker, is making this judgment all the time. There's absolutely appalling, appalling, not bad, and quite good. So who am I going to go and visit? I'm going to go. Is it absolutely appalling? And the others can. And being faced, when you were faced with that level of consistent um, awfulness, what, mm. did, what does that, what does it tell you about humanity's you know, almost proclivity for that kind of behaviour? Yeah. Um, I mean, I looked at it from, from the situation that why are, why is Leon's mother in such a state? You know, why, how, how do we prevent young girls, women, young boys getting to the point where they are losing their liberty, either in prison, mental institutions, whatever. Um, and it's largely, I think, to do with poverty and disempowerment and feeling disenfranchised. I don't have anything. I don't owe society. Society does nothing for me. Why am I going to contribute? Why am I going to get involved? Why am I going to engage? People don't care about me. They've made their minds up about me mm. and where I sit into the jigsaw puzzle and what I'm worth and your preconceived ideas of who I am. And very often they will live up to that. Uh, and I, I remember I, I wrote a screenplay once, um, which might soon be on TV. And I had a, a guy who was selling drugs and a sister who decided to go, both from you know, brother and sister, one decided to get, be really good and go straight and the other one said, well, I'm from the Estates, I'm selling drugs. And I was talking to this person, this uh, producer, and I said, you know, this is what they're going to do. And she said, but why would he sell drugs? And I'll say, well, that's what he's used to. I don't believe people just sell drugs because that's what they're used to. And I said, well, why do you think he would sell drugs? Because he's bad. People don't sell drugs. Some people do. People don't sell drugs because they're bad. They sell drugs because it's a viable alternative it's a viable career choice for them in the absence of lots of other um opportunities for for boys in estates for for girls in certain situations and it's interesting when you <clears throat> when i read so you the book inhabits leon's mind in such a truthful way and when you see leon feeling pain feeling loss and grief and it surfaces, and he acknowledges this as rage and anger, and he, he'll find himself just every so often taking a 50p piece out of someone's yes. purse, almost as a way of 
analgesing that yes um and asserting some control absolutely over this really fractured world yes inhabiting um and you know we all do that we all have our fuck you point where you i'm not going to take any more or i'm going to do this in response to that you know as we get older and as we have our corners knocked off us we learn how to do that perhaps cleverly or how to, when to let things go and what's worth standing up for. When you're 10, you're much more likely to to have your own little rebellion, whatever that little rebellion is. For Leon, it's stealing. For some children, it would be bad behaviour. It might be running away and running away and running away. But it'll be some kind of, this is my control. This is what I'm going to do to you because you're doing that to me. And the you... Encompasses everything. Social services, my mom, the woman upstairs, the the foster carers, the social workers that come and visit me, the people that ignore me. It's the it's the you of the world, the you of his world, and that little bit of look what I can do. Well, it it culminated in him picking up the knife, didn't it? Yes. And because that comes towards the end of the book, you can you know I certainly could entirely see the logic, the chain of events that led from what had happened to him. To him lifting a knife as a as an assertion of yes. power or authority yes. over this world that wasn't hearing him or totally. And if he'd been fifteen hmm. and there'd been a policeman nearby or someone had got hurt, that would have been the beginning of his career in prison. As it was, it it's diffused for now. I mean, no one know I know what happens to Leon after the book. But at that particular time in his life, he has escaped the consequences of taking that knife and using the knife. Um, It's all deflected and it it comes to a a reasonable conclusion for him. Had he been much older and there hadn't been that intervention by someone that cared and someone that knew the system, yeah, that, that boy could have definitely hurt someone, ended up in prison and never really then come out of the judicial system. And to what degree, and I've heard you, quote statistics on this and I, I don't know them but to what degree does this perpetuate whereby we find that the um those who have been through the care system are overrepresented for instance in prison yeah in mental health institutions and the prison population and the armed forces actually um boys particularly that have been in the care system are massively overrepresented in those kinds of institutions obviously in a quite healthy way in the armed forces because they're very used to being in care, they're very used to being in a system, very used to being told what to do. Um, but certainly mental health institutions, appalling representation of boys in care and uh, in prisons. And for girls, very um, destructive behaviour, lots of teenage pregnancies. I don't necessarily call that destructive behaviour, but sometimes it is. And prostitution and abuse by somebody because they're actually used to being abused a thing that leon asks for repeatedly in the book is for someone to tell him a story yes feels quite important yes um for him what was that um it was really um in the beginning he asks it of his mother because when his mother's in a healthy state of mind she will tell him stories um but it's really leon's uh, request for connection and it's also happy, usually a happy ending so it, it's him sort of asking for 
the narrative of his life to be put into some context. Mm -hmm. He feels so out of control. He feels so adrift. And if you have the once upon a time, this happened, they live happily ever after, it reinforces that that might happen to me. That might turn the world the right way up. Of course, what happens uh, repeatedly in the book is that he asks this of Sylvia, the very reluctant foster carer, who has never told a child a bedtime story in her life. So re she regurgitates the very dodgy jokes that she's heard mm -hmm. down the pub, and she, they're nevertheless very funny, and yeah. they are stories, but they're not what he's asking for. He laughs, and they're funny, but he's really asking for the happy ever after. Endly. And do you think, uh, moving on from Leon to, to you as a writer, given the terrain that you've just described to us as being, you know, real um, out there, do you think stories in a way, even without a happy ending, do give us a necessary structure to the sometimes painful vagaries of the world? Is I that do. part of their function? I, I think so. I think part of their function is for us to get inside other people's lives and to learn other lives. One of the main functions for me for literature is entertainment. You know, it doesn't have to be great. It doesn't, you know, there's such a lot of snobbery about what mm. people read. You've got to read literary fiction. It's got to be edifying. It's got to have this sort of narrative to it. It's got to have some research. It's got to be flowery. If it's romance, if it's crime, if it's science fiction, who cares? It's entertainment. It was always entertainment, stories around the fire. And there's a really... Um, Great quote, I can't remember who made it. I think it might have been G.K. Chesterton, who said stories exist to tell us not that there are dragons, but that dragons can be slain. <laughs> so it's very much uh, sometimes that there is an answer. There's an answer to life. and you know Who knows what the answer is, but there is a beginning. Here's you and here's me. And then you're condensing uh, all of life's problems and a couple of lifetimes sometimes, and all the people you might need. And all your problems are neatly tracked through these 300 pages. And look, here's this problem coming to its conclusion, good or bad. But it seems to want to make sense of arbitrary events. Mm. And it, it sort of corrals them into these pages where you close the book. And very often, if the ending's bad, that was a, that was a rubbish book mm. because you want that. You know, I don't know if you've ever had a waiter that's taken your plate with that last piece of steak <laughs> on it and you're like, I haven't finished. You don't want it, you don't need it, but it's just that full stop isn't there. I was interested that you didn't start you know, reading such novels anyway until your early 20s, which yeah. runs counter, doesn't it, to the whole um, middle-class idea of yes. little Johnny reading all of Agatha Christie yes. or whatever when he was eight. Yeah, what, absolutely. What's switched it for you what triggered it what happened did you just pick up a book and not stop? oh no no it was it was much worse than that um so I hated reading at school I was very very good at English um but reading was what you did at school and the minute you didn't have to read I wouldn't read I read the bible several times because my mother's uh, religious leanings but I didn't read anything else and then I left home at 16 and I was wild absolutely wild um, and around 21, I had a really bad couple of trips. I was, I was mashed. I was exhausted. And I just knew I could not go on living that lifestyle. I, I probably would have committed suicide. Um, so I stopped 
drugs, drink, everything. And of your own? Completely of my own, overnight, mm. a New Year's Eve bet that saved my life probably. Um, I was working at the time. I got a job shortly after and the nights were long, let me tell you, with that drugs and drink or, you know, partying. So I was like, what am I going to do? And I worked for a solicitor and I said to him, give me 10 books, just give me 10 good books to read, not realising he was a military man. So he gave me The Siege of Krishnapur, The Red Badge of Courage. Uh, He didn't give me War and Peace, although that came later. But they were all military books, except for two, um, Madame Bovary and Therese Rackham. And the, the military books were great. The Middle of the Sands, fantastic, great. But I got to Madame Bovary, and I bear in mind I left school, actually 15 when I left school. Um, so I don't know anything about anything. I know the Dickens we read at school. I don't know about modernism. Impressionism. I don't know any of these terms. I'm really uneducated. So I'm just reading these cold, mm. never heard of any of them. Um, I read Madame Bovary and there was a passage in it and it was like a ping. It was like, but this man is, it's in, I think, 1895. It's in Rouen. He's a doctor. I've got nothing in common with this man and I know him. <laughs> how has he done that? How's the writer done that? And that fascinated me. And then I was off. Uh, so I got another 10. And then I got another 10. And I got another 10. And by the time, I don't know, 10 years later, I'd read hundreds. And again, never, no one had told me anything about movements, about schools of thought, about, I'd never heard of the Bloomsbury set. I still don't know exactly who comprises the Bloomsbury set. And it was a joy because it was just me and literature. It was just me and books. And I, I don't think I'll ever have that joy again because it was so uninformed. And so raw. And so raw. And just led. You know, I, I found out that Arnold Bennett knew, uh, sorry, that, that um, Gustav Flaubert knew Arnold Bennett, so I'm going to read Arnold Bennett. Mm. And then I find out that Arnold Bennett knew somebody else. I'll read him. And then Somerset Maugham was, oh, that's the same sign, Patrick Hamilton. And so I'm just darting around, being led completely by my own, uh, you know, my own interests or sometimes the picture on the cover of the book. And at sort of hundreds of books later, I then sort of thought, right, now what am I going to read? And it put more thought into it before I was just taking books off the shelf. There's a thing you just said, which I just want to pick up on, which is that the so reading the Flaubert and connecting with the characters and the, the writerly voice, such as it is. And this whole business of how writers um, approach their characters and the... Um, substance of the storytelling and you've written and talked about this a lot but it's feels very important to me in its um resonance with medicine and that whole business of what one can do as a writer yes quite freely and perhaps glibly and what what one ought to do yes how one how um, a person orientates themselves to the writing that whole positioning in terms of reverence and Real understanding as yes. opposed to just... Yeah, I'm just going to do this. Yeah, because I can and I'm entitled yeah. to. 
Can you say a bit about that? Sure. So it's what's fashionably called cultural appropriation. I think it's much wider than that because that cultural appropriation label is, is contentious. It already makes it a contentious subject just by saying someone's taking something from someone else. Um, it's much more to do with not who owns the story, but who's best placed. I mean, we can do anything. We can, you know, if you're a writer, you can write about anything. You can be a dog, you can be a spaceman, you can be a Viking, it doesn't matter. You can use your imagination to inhabit these lives. And that's one of the great things about literature that we explain human behaviour to one another or attempt to. But there are some subjects that are much more than entertainment. They're much more important and they're also much more sensitive. So, for example, let's take the Holocaust. Um, I could I could write about the Holocaust, of course. I could write about being prisoner number 759. And I've seen all the films. Let's say I do lots of research and I'm going to write another Holocaust novel about uh, what it's like to be in Auschwitz. I would feel very uncomfortable about doing that because it's such a sensitive subject to people that are still alive. And even if they weren't alive, it's such a sensitive subject. It's a huge political and social event and wrong done to people um, who have suffered greatly. There are lots of people who will tackle that subject and very, very well. I think there are other people that can do it better. And I, I, I wouldn't trust me to add anything to the conversation. If I thought I could add something, maybe I would, but I don't believe me with my understanding and my life is going to add anything to that very, very, very well-researched and very well-written so subject. The, resist- the hesitancy isn't so much a fear of entering, um, you know, fraught terrain, yeah. so much as thinking... I'm not sure I can do this justice or do this well enough or afford it afford it the understanding yeah. it deserves. I think it's two things. So it, it is definitely what can I add to the conversation. It is also being very mindful of the sensitivities. And I'll use the example, again, of a child going into the care system. So let's say you're nine when you go into care and you get, a, you know, you're taken by the social worker to your bedroom and the social worker will help you pack. And then the social worker will say, pack whatever you like, but it's got to go in this suitcase. You know, we're not taking six suitcases, we're taking one suitcase. So you will take your favourite trainers, you'll take your action line, you'll take your Lego, you might take a letter from your mom, you might take a birthday card, you might take a photograph, and you might take a necklace or whatever. You've got a bag full of stuff. Some of it's clothes, some of it's stuff. And you go into care. And then... You go somewhere else at 11 and you go somewhere else at 12. You go three places when you're 13. You go five places when you're 14. And every time you pack up your stuff, something's gone. Till by the time you're 16, you have one piece of the Lego, a link of the chain, and the photograph's been folded in half three times. The rest is gone. But what that stuff, which looks like rubbish to you, represents is who you are or certainly who you were and it's your connection to the past so Lionel Shriver for example gave a talk um recently not recently probably last year to um students in America and she said as writers we have the right to wear any hat we want you can wear the sombrero 
can be a Mexican. You can wear feathers. You can wear this. You can wear that. You can just put on this hat and be that writer. That's our writer's artist. Now, she's absolutely right. We can. Question is, should we? When we try and use um, the hat, if you like, of some of the very, very oppressed people of the world, some of the marginalised people, the hurt people, the sombrero, the feathers, you don't know what the feathers mean. You don't know what the feathers represent because right now in America, those feathers represent lands and rights and and the beautiful things that were lost when the West invaded America. The sombrero is one of the few things that, and and it is actually mocked and used on stag nights and stuff like that. So those precious things is all that those people have left of their identity. And it looks just like a hat for a stag night. It looks just like feathers. It just looks like a Chinese dress, whatever. It looks like nothing. To those people, it's supremely important. And until we can really take on the weight of the feathers and whatever else it is we're writing about and really understand how precious those things are, I personally would be really very cautious about saying, I know the feathers. I'll have a go. I'll have a go. I'll do that. I'll wear the feathers today because I I think I've, I've read a couple of books. I can do it. Yes. And I think we have to be really respectful of people's things. They look like rubbish. You know, I've seen children in care who are clutching a rag or a trainer or the laces from a trainer. And that, that lace in the trainer is my dad. Oh, I can buy you some. Don't worry. I'll buy you some new trainers. I'll get you some new laces. They don't want the new laces. They want their dad. Here's my dad. He's, he, he's the laces in my trainer. And people don't understand that. They don't understand how those physical things that look like rubbish and look like nothing are imbued with longing and loss and grief and identity and pride and storytelling and parents and ancestors. And we just have to be careful. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying be careful where you put your foot. Brilliantly put. Thank you for that so much. That's extraordinary to hear you um, praise it in that, in that way. Just tell me, you, we were talking about this earlier on and I've seen you write about it. The You feel now a more compassionate person. I, I suspect you wouldn't go around saying, I'm kids with a compassionate person, compared to when you <laughs> yes. in your 20s. Yes. Premised on being less black and white and binary totally. and concrete yeah. about the world. Yeah. I call it embracing the grey. So I was brought up as a Jehovah's Witness, and if there is a religion on this earth that likes rules and regulations and answers, it is Jehovah's Witnesses. And I was very much brought up to say, to, to, to have the attitude that there is an answer, and the answer will be a binary choice between good and bad, good and evil, right and wrong, approved by God, disapproved by God. Um, and although I stopped being a Jehovah's Witness when I was 16, I definitely had that attitude going forward that there is an answer and that behaviour is wrong and that behaviour is right and that there's an answer to that problem. And that makes that certainly takes compassion away because there's no, uh, there are no mitigating circumstances. There's, you know, prison or freedom. 
certainly now I cannot think of an issue possibly other than Trump's presidency and today's and today's announcement. disastrous <laughs> announcement okay. that there is a right and wrong answer to that this is right and that is wrong. There are always, even if I would say I think this is wrong, there has to be space to listen to the argument um, that that it might not be wrong. Do you think the arts, in a way, without kind of you know aggrandizing them, afford a space where nuance is a bit more permissible. Yes, particularly literature. Mm. Um, because you are, if, if you're a good writer, you're inhabiting someone else's. I mean, you, you're inhabiting a character in the way that you will never know your husband, wife or children. You're, you're going deeper than that. You're going into their, not just what they do, but what precedes what they do and what precedes it maybe by 50 years or by 100 years to get them to the point where they're going to do this particular action. So I think it's really good to, uh, which is why reading is so fantastic, because you you get to know people. You think you do. You get to know people in, in a way that you never could by talking to them for 100 years. Kit Duval, it's been a genuine pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank it's you. Entirely illuminating and really valuable. So thank you. Thank you very much. Medicine Unbox keeps its large audio and film archive online. Do take a look. But for now, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Here,